Welcome to Making Moves, a podcast presented by Skate Like a Girl and the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. In today's episode, we discuss gender equity, featuring an interview with Ann Lieberman, Director of Program and Policy at Athlete Ally, led by the Executive Director of Skate Like a Girl, Kristen Ebeling. This is McKenna Duda, your host. I'm a Cal State East Bay alum, former collegiate, now recreational runner, and I just recently earned my bachelor's degree in kinesiology. Here, we'd like to serve our audience by educating and also inspiring y'all to feel empowered through sport, social justice, and skateboarding. All athletes, skateboarders, and fans of sport and social justice are welcome. Alrighty, folks, let's take this moment to be mindful. Your water intake correlates with body temperature regulation, body waste removal, and it can have so much to do with your current energy levels. Water is fundamental to maintaining your health, so go finish that glass of water. When talking about gender equity, we are looking at who is not showing up and participating in sport, and what can we do differently to close that gap? We find it of utmost importance to support all individuals wanting to live an active lifestyle. No one should feel the need to hide a significant part of their identity in order to do so. So, when someone remains unsupported by the current structure of sports, the implementation of change must also include these individuals within the organizational planning of sport. Let's make it happen. What's up, everybody? It's Kristen Ebling here, she and her pronouns. I am the executive director of Skate Like a Girl. I'm super excited to welcome back my friends and fans of social justice, skateboarding, and sports. Uh, Super excited today to chat with my friend Ann Lieberman. Anne is a social justice strategist in sport policy work and a lifelong athlete. Currently, Anne serves as the director of policy and programs for Athlete Ally, a nonprofit organization working to dismantle the structures of oppression that isolate, exclude, and endanger LGBTQ people in sport. Anne has over a decade of experience in advancing rights and gender equity globally, including leading grant-making and advocacy efforts in South and Southeast Asia for American Jewish World Service and two years in Thailand on a Fulbright Fellowship conducting research on gender and sexuality in Muay Thai. Previously, Anne worked as a researcher for the Bronx African American History Project and was awarded a Skomberg Center for Research in Black Culture Fellowship. Anne holds an MA from Columbia in human rights, and a BA in African and African-American studies and women's studies from Fordham University. Anne is a three-time national champion in Muay Thai and a coach and heads the USA Muay Thai's Gender Equality Commission. Dang, that's a resume. It was a sport just to read that out loud, Anne. Dang. So, Anne, welcome to the pod. Um, Where are you joining us from today? Thank you so much and great work getting through my bio. Anybody out there want to edit it for me? Because I hate writing it. So just putting that out there. <laughs> um, Anne Lieberman, they, them pronouns. I am joining from the traditional unceded homeland of the Lenape people or Crown Heights in Brooklyn. Very dope. Very dope. Thanks for being here again. Um, let's get this popping with, I'm curious, what sport are you not good at, but wish that you were and why? 
Uh, this makes me laugh so much because I literally am so bad at most sports except for Muay Thai. <laughs> but growing up, I played team sports and I played them very badly and I played basketball and I loved it. Um, and I was thinking about some of my NBA and WNBA icons like Cheryl Swoops and Sue Bird and Lisa Leslie and remembered that I was also obsessed with Dennis Rodman growing up, which doesn't surprise me because I just love that he was a crazy talented athlete with colorful hair and wore dresses and oh, you know, yeah. so big, yeah, so big basketball fan. That's what's up. That's awesome. Um, so how did you get introduced to sports? Um, so my mom denies this, but she put me in ballet really, really young because she wanted to keep me active. Cause again, I was a awkward, chubby little queer kid. And <laughs> she realized that I was only coming back to ballet because they gave us popcorn balls at the end. So I would just do the, <laughs> I would just do the minimal amount of work to just make it to the end because I love the popcorn ball. And so then she was like, oh no, 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 this is not gonna work. And she found this amazing, amazing uh, Tang Sudo instructor. Tang Sudo is a, a Korean martial art that's similar to Taekwondo. And the person that was my sensei was, I found this out later in life was like a, many, many times over world champion in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, but so I did that for really most of my life until I, until I went to college. So that was really, you know, I've been a martial artist my whole life. Dang, that's so awesome. Like, what was the connection there? Was like that studio just nearby your house or like, was, or any of your parents like into martial arts or did you like thought, think it was just cool or something or? Yeah, I think my mom was just trying to find something she thought would keep my attention. Mm -hmm. um, and she found there was like a local center right, right by us, like probably a 10 minute drive away. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and she found this class and I think she just figured like, let's give it a try. Didn't have any martial artists in my family. My brother played hockey all growing up. Uh, I wasn't allowed to play hockey. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I know. So gendered. So, so yeah. gendered. Yeah, dude, I um I relate to that a lot because um when I was a kid, my parents put me in ballet, like first thing. And I was horrible at it. Like I didn't want to be there. Like I thought I was really dumb. But the cool thing is that I got to do ballet and gymnastics and I was all about gymnastics. Like, anyways, yeah. So your popcorn ball was by gymnastics. <laughs> I love that. But Makes yeah, luckily, too. yeah, got into other sports. But that's cool. So, you know, given that your path was mostly like martial arts, do you consider yourself like a traditional or more of a non-traditional um, athlete and why? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because I think it kind of gets us into this binary about what sports are quote normal or traditional and what, you know, which sports aren't. So I think like in Western context, I probably don't do it a quote unquote traditional sport, but mm -hmm. you know, I would say that I hope that Muay Thai becomes more traditional and more mainstream. I also think about like, Hmm, is loving to fight people traditional? I don't know, but, yeah. <laughs> but I do, but I do love it. But I think it's a really interesting question. Cool. Yeah. So somebody that's not super familiar with it outside of like big matches and stuff like that. Um, is it fairly like representative and diverse, like in your opinion, or is Muay Thai still pretty, or like, I guess, uh, I don't know, martial arts in general. 
do you feel like it's still like dominated by a certain, you know, identity group? Yeah, it's definitely very, very male dominated overall, but that's definitely shifting. Mm-hmm. Muay Thai is, is interesting because you really are seeing much more interest in Muay Thai now that MMA has become so, so popular because, right. you know, Muay Thai, so, so folks who don't know, Muay Thai is a martial art that originated in Thailand and it's similar to American style kickboxing, but in addition to your hands and feet, you can also use your elbows and your knees to strike, which is why it's been so heavily utilized in, in MMA because it's a great, it's just such a beautiful and intense striking sport. And it's really exciting to watch um, and allows that kind of diversity in striking that, you know, you can elbow and knee somebody in the clinch and then bring them to the ground and, and work on your ground game. So um, yeah, it's really, really great, but it's, I would say in the past five years or so with more promotions, like one championship, for example, um, being much more, accessible around the world muay thai on its own has become much more popular nice that's awesome thanks for uh giving me some insight um yeah. appreciate that i love hearing about people's passions like i get so excited um but speaking of another passion of yours let's talk a little bit about um athlete ally the organization you work for and tell us like maybe your mission and like maybe more on the ground what are some projects you're working on with um the organization yeah so athlete ally I'm happy to say that this is our 10-year anniversary. Woo, yeah. So excited about that. Double digits, um, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And the organization has just grown and changed so much in a decade. So I feel really, really just grateful to be able to do this work every day. And really what we do is we work to dismantle the structures of oppression that isolate, exclude, and endanger LGBTQI plus people in sport. And we do that in three primary ways. So the first is through education. The second is through policy advocacy. And the third is through athlete activism. On the education front, we really want to make sure that every athlete, team, league, sport governing body, et cetera, has access to high quality LGBTQ plus inclusion education. So that means how do we make our teams, our leagues, any sporting environment really inclusive for all athletes. And what does that look like? What are tools that you can use? Um, And so again, we work at all levels of sport, but our education work has really shifted, especially in the past two years, three years to focus a lot on trans inclusion in sport, which we'll talk a little bit more about later on. But on Mm -hmm. the policy advocacy front, we want to make sure that the policies that govern sport actually represent the diversity of people playing sport, which we know is not the case right now. Um, And so looking at the policy landscape specifically for trans athletes, um, we've been doing a ton of work this legislative session to fight trans athlete bans. So bills that are targeting trans kids who want to play sports with their friends in over 30 states. Um, And the numbers of those bills, so 30 states, close to 70 bills specifically targeting trans kids and their ability to play sports with their friends. So a lot of the policy, yeah, it's wild. So a lot of the policy advocacy work has been focused on, you know, how are we working with state-based groups to connect them to athletes in our network who want to support trans kids? 
how are we helping state groups um, and organizers with messaging, talking points, helping to write testimony in state legislatures, things like that. Uh, so that has been a really significant chunk of our work in the policy advocacy space. Um, but another big thing we do is we work to make sure anywhere where championship events are held, so or mega sporting events, so like Super Bowls, a World Cup, NCAA championships mm -hmm. are held in states and cities that protect, respect, and promote human rights, but especially LGBTQ plus rights. So how do we mm -hmm. make sure, for example, if there is going to be a Super Bowl in Atlanta, that LGBTQ plus people are protected under the law if they're going there as athletes, as spectators, as coaches, et cetera. Mm. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. And the last piece of the policy advocacy work is the Athletic Equality Index or the AEI. And I have a feeling we'll probably dig more into that later on, but essentially we just relaunched it last week. You can nice. visit the new website. Yeah, I'm so excited. You can visit the new website at aei.athleteally.org and the AEI ranks and reports on the LGBTQ plus policies or lack thereof of all division one NCAA institutions. So it's been a tremendous undertaking. I'm so proud of the research team and our, our comms yeah. team. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, and then the last really big piece of our work, which I think is off really the sexiest for most people, is our, <laughs> our work our work on athlete activism. And you know this about us, but we feel very strongly that athletes should not be told to just shut up and dribble, that athletes have yeah. a real role to play in advancing social justice in the U.S. and beyond, and they should be supported to do that. And so the support we give athletes who are our ambassadors, we now have over 350 pro Olympic, Paralympic athletes and coaches who are part of our network, we take a look at their interests uh, and their areas of passion, not only LGBTQ plus issues, but racial justice, veterans rights, disability rights, any host of things that they might be interested in and work to connect them to opportunities to use their voice to speak up and out on those issues. Um, and then the last piece of our athlete activism work are incredible college chapters. We have mm -hmm. 30 student-led chapters across the country that are just killing it. They've been applying nice. a lot of pressure on the NCAA um, to move championships out of, out of states that are trying to pass anti-trans bills. So I feel really lucky that we also have such an incredible network of, of students who, again, are really using their, their power and platform as, as athletes to create change. Awesome. Wow. That's so amazing. And I know you touched a little bit on the AEI, the Athletic Equality Index, but do you want to give us a little bit more of a insight into what that is and how it operates and maybe it's like functionality, I guess, from like, let's say like, you know, there's somebody that's from a college campus or wants to, you know, look into that or understand more. Maybe they're like an ally and want to support, but don't know what like you know, where to find the information of like what good policy looks like. I don't know if you want to just give us some more insight into that, a little more detail. Yeah, absolutely. So our research team, um, pardon me, ranked and reported all division one institutions on a series of eight criteria. And so that includes, for example, does this college or university within the athletic department have 
trans inclusion policy? Do they have an inclusive fan code of conduct? Do they have a comprehensive non-discrimination statement that includes a sexual orientation, gender identity expression, et cetera? And all of this is outlined on the website. Um, but the methodology shifted a little bit this year from the 2017 Athletic Equality Index. Um, and so it's also a more detailed Sorry, you're going to hear a little bit of background noise on my end, I think. Um, it's a more detailed report that really drills down on um, what policies are inclusive, which are not, and then what steps students and athletic administrators can take to raise their AEI score. Um, and so I think there are a few um, pieces that were really shocking about the report. So one is that we know that when there are LGBTQ plus educational resources readily available on athletic department websites, that LGBTQ plus student athletes and staff can talk about issues and get support without fear of repercussions. But 70% of division one athletic departments don't offer any resources. So that's something that we're trying very hard to change. Yeah. Um, and the other piece as well that I think is a really significant stat from the report is that even though we've seen so many more athletes coming out as LGBTQ plus in college, um, and this is even before being recruited, um, only 2.8% of NCAA Division I athletes compete in departments that fully protect and support their LGBTQ plus identities. Whoa. So we have a lot of work to do, but the yeah. good thing about the AI is that we now have a baseline. And so it's only up from here. <laughs> nice. Can you share maybe some things that make like a, a you know, an NCAA division one program really stand out as being, you know, in line with the mission of athlete ally, like maybe what are some things uh, like tangible things that they do to, to really support um, those um, LGBTQ plus uh, athletes? Yeah. So I think, in addition to some of the policies that we mentioned, the practices are really important too. So, and some of those include, you know, is there training available for coaches, staff, and, and athletes on LGBTQ plus inclusion? There's quite a bit on, on trans inclusive policies and departments, you know, um, do athletic departments partner with their campus LGBTQ center? So we're also looking for, those relationships as an indication of the athletic department's kind of awareness and commitment to LGBTQ plus inclusion. Um, and then I think the, the last piece of that is really around, are there LGBTQ plus educational resources readily available on the website? And that's a big part of the AEI. It's not only about having the policies or, or the practices, it's about is this information readily available so that a student who's being recruited or a current student athlete can see the support from the athletic department without yeah. having to dig around or potentially put themselves at risk, risk or out themselves by asking for that information. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you for giving a little more detail there. Helpful. Yeah. Um, Cool. So speaking of, you know, the work that you do, you mentioned trans athletes and, you know, how that's big in the news right now and all this horrible legislation and all that stuff. Um, can you share just some of the common misconceptions or false narratives around trans athlete athletes in sport? Oh, how much time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> Take as much as you need. 
Um, yeah, thank you for asking this question. I think before I do that, I just, I want to say that this has been the most harrowing legislative session in his, in history for LGBTQ plus people. Yeah. Uh, we are trying to fight over 300 anti-LGBTQ plus bills all around the country in more than half the country. And then in terms of the anti-trans bills, both the athlete bans and the healthcare bans, those make up a third of those, that overall 300 number. So it's been crazy to see the backlash uh, in, at the state level that's really focusing on one of our most vulnerable and often marginalized communities, which is which are trans kids. So I just want to say that up front, that we are in a very particular and very scary political moment. And um, it's been so emotional and just heartbreaking to see the way in which legislators across the country have been debating the humanity and identity of kids. Um, so I think the, the first misconception is that somehow trans women and girls, if they're able to compete, will take over women's sport. So the first piece is that there's just, there's no empirical evidence that trans women and girls have or will ever dominate women's sport. The current focus on trans athletes is 1000% a solution in search of a problem. Um, mm. it's, a tact, it's a tactic that's being used by the far right to, again, target trans kids target trans people because there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation overall about trans kids and trans people. And this is just evidenced by the fact that, uh, you know, for example, in early March, the AP wrote an article um, and I, we can put the, the link in the, the notes, but the, mm-hmm. the, they wrote a story about how lawmakers in states with trans athlete bans can't even cite examples of trans athletes in their states, <laughs> that a lot of the language is just, you know, and this is, this is from a newswire, a very credible newswire it's from the AP, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and so this has also been something that media has tried to report on, which is the fact that these lawmakers just can't cite examples of trans athletes in their states. And also, are not doing the work to actually protect and promote women's sport. Um, you know, another example of this is many of the lawmakers will consistently talk about two young black trans women, and that's important. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Andre Yerwood and, Ter- and Terry Miller in Connecticut as examples of oh, trans women and girls are taking over women's sport. You know, the these girls in Connecticut won everything. They got scholarships, which is entirely not true. Andrea and Terry, they won some races. They lost some races, just like any athlete. They also worked their butts off to, and they're incredibly driven young women. Um, and even the group of young women who filed a case against uh, Terry and Andrea and the Connecticut High School Athletic Association, they did this in partnership with the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a known hate group. These girls also beat Andrea and Terry in races and Andrea and Terry did not receive any athletic scholarships. And actually Andrea is not even running anymore in college because everything that she experienced in high school was so painful. And Mm. the 
just the violent rhetoric from the media, from parents was just too much. Um, so it's, it, it's important also to think about, you know, the impact on trans kids when they're put under a microscope and are the target of, of hate and really, really intense hate at that. Um, I think the other piece about, you know, this being a solution in search of a problem is that there have been policies in place for trans athletes to compete at the highest levels of sport, like in the Olympics since 2003. And in over 54,000 athletes, not a single athlete has been openly trans that has competed in the Olympics. Um, another common misconception is, wow. yeah, isn't that wild? Um, that's, that's wild. I mean, you would think with the way the right comes at this, you know, that there would be like this overabundance, but it, you know, it's totally right. Like what you were saying, it's like a solution in search of a problem. Like the problem doesn't really exist. People are just scared of what they don't know. And they're just, yeah, it just seems like fear mongering. It's absolutely fear mongering. And actually it's, there are the exact same arguments that were used in the case against uh, Renee Richards from playing tennis in, in the seventies, exactly the same arguments. They were, talking about the impending takeover of trans women and women and girls sport, which of course never happened and is not going to happen. Um, the other thing we hear over and over again is that trans women and girls have some kind of inherent advantage over cis women and girls in sport, which is also not true. Um, trans girls and trans kids in general face such an uphill battle in every single aspects of their, their lives. Mm. So much discrimination so much violence that it makes it difficult for them to even stay in school. And there was a U.S. trans survey that um, said that 22% of trans women who were perceived as trans were harassed so badly that they were forced to leave school. Okay. Trans women, trans kids um, face higher rates of depression and suicide. So the idea that trans women and girls have some kind of advantage simply because they're trans absolutely ignores the reality of the rest of their lives and trans girls like our all girls just want to play sports with their friends and be a part of a community yeah. a team you know they want to feel like kids and yeah. get access to all the amazing life-saving benefits of sport and mm. no no person would pretend to be trans to achieve, to achieve some kind of glory in women's sports, um, especially because it is so hard right now to be trans in the United States. Like we talked about the levels of harassment, violence, bullying, all of it is just so hard to endure. Um, and I think the last piece I'll say, because oh, there's just so much, but yeah, <laughs> I, I'm somebody who grew up worshiping women's sports, you know, as a non-binary person. And, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the nineties and I had no words for my gender identity. Sports was the, one of the only places where I felt like myself, where I felt embodied, where the bullying stopped for like two seconds. And I could yeah. just, you know, forget everything and everything fell away. And not only do I want every kid to have access to the life-saving benefits of sport that I did, but I also want us to actually address 
the very real and documented challenges to women's sports. Like I want all schools to be in compliance with title nine. I want women's programs and programs for young girls to be properly funded. I want women to have equal pay. Like these are the issues, you know, the, the the, the issues are not trans athletes and in all of the amazing organizations that have done research on gender equity in sport, like the women's sports foundation, you know, they released a report called chasing equity in 2019. That is incredibly thorough. And guess what is not mentioned anywhere in that report? Trans athletes, because they're not a threat to women's sports. So it's just, it's so painful to see this narrative unfolding because at the end of the day, there are real people and real kids that pay the consequences of, of lawmakers' actions. And it's just been so, so heartbreaking to watch. Definitely. Yeah. I wanted to speak to two things that you brought up because it just kind of was like buzzing off of my head. I was like, yes, yes, yes. And I think the first one is just when you talked about advantages and like just from my realm of skateboarding, I've talked about this for years. I'm like, people are stressed about like trans women coming into skateboarding or whatever, um, or trans men or whatever. Like people have all this fear around trans folks, but it's like, and how they have some advantage or something. But if you think about it, it's like, what about the kid that has the parents that like, built them a vert ramp in their backyard. Like I I know kids that straight up their parents are so wealthy. They have their own private skate park in their backyard or they get to go to skate camp every summer or they always have new skate equipment, you know? And if you think about that on a global scale with other sports, there's so many advantages and people are not up in arms about those. Like, especially if you think about in the winter Olympics and snow sports and who has access to snow sports, you know, like, so yeah, I just wanted to say that was like buzzing in my head. I was like, yes. Um, and the second thing you said about just the life-changing nature of sport and where the bullying goes away. And that I totally, that very much resonated with me. I was the girl that played football with the boys at recess. Like sports was the only area that I really felt like I could fully be myself and robbing that of young people and any human being, but especially young people. Like, man, I got chills when you were talking about that. Like it just breaks my heart. So thank you for you know, sharing and unpacking those, those myths and and fictions. And, you know, hopefully we can, as a community start to, you know, talk about the real inequities, which are like, you know, making sure women do have more access to sport, you know, if that's the concern, okay, let's go for it. Like what's up with title (laughs) nine. So definitely hit the nail on the head. Awesome. So speaking of like kind of some gaps and all that, I know you do a lot of work and, you know, you have the NCAA uh, under a microscope in a lot of ways, which is amazing. Um, Can you share maybe some bigger wins um, at the collegiate level and or like what are some big gaps that we're looking at? Just in NCAA in particular. Yeah. So I want to start by saying that there are some folks inside the NCAA that are doing such good work and are trying so hard to make change. And it's been so, so frustrating to see the NCAA's lack of response specifically to the anti-trans laws that are threatening student-athletes across the country. And though they have released a number of statements, all of the statements have fell short from actually saying that they'll uphold their 2016 non-discrimination policy and not hold championships in places that openly discriminate against trans athletes. So that's been really frustrating uh, and just, again, heartbreaking to see. And I'm not sure why they just won't say the words, especially when over 700 student athletes on two different occasions wrote, signed on to an open letter to the NCAA calling them, calling on them to 
really make a strong statement in support of trans athletes. Um, so that's been really, really challenging. And I know, again, the NCAA as an institution has a commitment to updating their 2011 trans inclusion guidelines to change some language to include non-binary athletes. So it's a, it's been really tough with the NCAA because there are some folks within it that are really trying to make change, but there's something happening at the leadership level that is not in line with the fundamental values of the, the fundamental express values of the NCAA as an institution, mm. which has been really, really tough to watch. Gosh, yeah. That's, that's such a bummer, but also like so classic, like people at the top, like not really getting it. Um, yeah. I've seen also, I don't know if you probably obviously saw this, but there was the whole thing with the different um, weight rooms during like the basketball tournaments and stuff. And, you know, I don't know if you have any comments or thoughts on that, but I was oh, like yeah. particularly moved by that social media moment where athletes were speaking out and then like it happened like that as soon as they're, you know, put on blast like that. So I don't know. Any, any thoughts or comments on, on that situation? Yeah. Uh, I was unfortunately not surprised knowing what I do about gender equity in NCAA sports, but I was really, really proud of the student athletes who put them on blast and said, look, like, let's talk about what our realities are right now. And also for the athletes and, and many of them, WNBA players who said, Oh, you're so concerned about women's sports, you know, where, where were you when all of this stuff was happening and you only want to talk about women's sports when we want to talk about trans athletes. So, yeah. you know, the NCAA has a lot of work to do on gender equity more broadly and also making sure that all of its member schools are in compliance with title nine, which is not the case. Wow. I had no idea that that was a thing. Like I thought for sure, like at this point, like there's somebody making sure that happens. But if you're telling me right now, like there's schools out here that are just fully not in compliance. Yeah. Fully not in compliance. And so that's why when we talk about, again, like, you know, Title IX is in place for a reason. And, mm. trans, and trans women and girls, by the way, are covered under Title IX and protected. So you can't discriminate against trans women and girls. Um, Hell Yeah. But we we do really need to be holding folks accountable, our legislators, folks in our athletic departments, to make sure that that everything's above board, that institutions are compliant with Title IX, that there are real and deep opportunities for women and girls in sport. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. That's awesome. Um. Yeah. So, um, as you may know, skateboarding is coming into its debut this summer, um, in the summer Olympic games, which is pretty crazy moment for me. I've been skateboarding for 20 years and never did I think that, you know, that was going to happen, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and because of COVID USA skateboarding, the kind of governing body of, you know, American skateboarders, um, is uh, or hosted an online video contest for you know the different disciplines park which is like bowl skating and street which is you know obstacles like stairs and handrails and things like that for both men and women um and there's actually a skater uh who won and uh she just happens to be trans and um i just recently saw that usa skateboarding made a post that was like hey we want to acknowledge that this woman actually won but because of the ioc's rules like this skater is not actually eligible to move on um 
you know, cause there's like a couple brackets you kind of have to like jump through, you know, to, um, compete, but like, she was not able to kind of jump through the IOC's hoops, um, to be accepted, to move on, which is just so heartbreaking. And just being such a, um, an advocate for women skateboarding women and, and, uh, you know, trans people, um, of all identities and just, you know, making sure folks have space in skateboarding. And it was just kind of a shock. Um, so I was just curious, like, what are your thoughts kind of given your, um, you know, expertise in this area? Like, what are your thoughts on the IOC's policies and like the eligibility of trans athletes? Like, I'm assuming there's work to be done, but I'm curious exactly what that work is and maybe what's the good and the bad and the ugly. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I will say that, I can't remember in which month, but the IOC released a statement saying that it was undergoing a full and deep look at all of its policies and implementing a much more robust human rights framework in partnership with a number of key stakeholders. Um, And we've been lucky to be at the table talking more about that that human rights framework. And so the IOC, I, I think, knows that their policy their current policy, which was the 2015 consensus statement, is not a one-size-fits-all for all sports and for all athletes. And so um, in so the first trans policy came out in 2003, and then the updated one in 2015 was called the 2015 consensus statement. And we can also put that um, those links so folks can take a look at it. But essentially, in that statement, the IOC acknowledges that there has been there have been growing conversations on bodily autonomy, on human rights for both athletes with intersex variations and trans athletes. And and that, you know, thinking around transport policy has shifted. And so the IOC wanted to create a policy that was more equitable and did not force athletes to undergo unnecessary surgery in order to compete at the highest levels of sport. What the 2015 statement says is that trans men can compete in the the men's category without restriction, restriction, but trans women have to hit a certain number of variables, including they need to have their uh, testosterone in serum under a particular level for a particular amount of time. Uh, They have to commit to competing in that same gender category for four years, et cetera. I don't have enough time to kind of jump into how problematic it is that testosterone has become the sole indicator of whether or not an athlete is going to be a good athlete or a bad athlete or Mm. the sole indicator for competitive advantage overall. But I will say this, testosterone is not the be all end all of competitive advantage. There is no evidence and scientific evidence to suggest that testosterone is the sole indicator of athletic performance. There are so many different factors that create a fantastic athlete and to hinge sport policy on one hormone that is incredibly complex uh, is problematic. And so what we have to do is, is create and examine eligibility requirements that are sport specific and that actually make sense with the available science. You will hear people say there's no overlap in testosterone for cis men and cis women at elite levels of sport. That is not correct. There's a whole lot of things that people say that is not actually based or grounded in peer-reviewed 
credible, not cherry-picked scientific evidence. Um, I will tell folks to get the book called Testosterone, an Unauthorized Biography, read the chapter on athleticism, and read any associated studies also. Um, I'm a big believer in reading everything I can get my hands on so I can understand, you know, where the arguments are on either side. So that's a really significant piece as well. Um, I will say though, given this current climate, the IOC's policy is the least bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, so I would say we're looking at a climate where folks are trying to ban trans athletes altogether, where they're yeah. trying to put in very intense restrictions for trans kids, you know, so I also think there are certain times where, look, is the ISC's policy perfect? Of course not. Are we ever going to get to a perfect policy? Probably not. So we have to kind of balance expectations and fundamental human rights of folks to make sure that we have policies in place that do the least damage if we're in a climate like this. That's really scary, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. So what you're saying is like the IOC might not be like the gold standard, but at this point, because the bar is incredibly low um, and the threat is so grave that like it's not the your number one concern, I guess, maybe in terms of this work. If I'm summarizing yeah, correctly. It, okay. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. All right. Yeah. I was just curious, just, you know, again, just as skateboarding gets into the Olympic games and, you know, there's so many amazing trans skaters out there and skateboarding, you know, had a kind of watershed moment a couple of years ago in the first like out gay man in skateboarding, Brian Anderson. Um, there's a whole documentary made about him and all that. And I'd say ever since then, there's just been a lot more conversation around queer folks in skateboarding and trans folks in particular lately. So I'm excited and open to the idea of skateboarding, pushing on that boundary, maybe more than other sports because skateboarding is so non-traditional and the, you see all types of bodies in skateboarding. Um, and it's really beautiful. So I, I, I am excited and open to the future where, you know, skateboarding is maybe a part of that, that conversation more so in the future as it embarks on being, you know, a real sport. <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah, and I think skateboarding really has that opportunity because you see so many different bodies in skateboarding, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about what makes somebody a successful skateboarder is different from what makes somebody a successful swimmer or somebody a successful Muay Thai fighter, you know? So it's also really interesting to consider, again, how we think about competitive advantage because it's not one size fits all. And also, we love sports because we have athletes in our lives that are just like crazy good specimens of nature, you know, like we also like sports because they're not fair. And because we have athletes who just like Michael Phelps who have biological advantages. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and those biological advantages are so varying and, and different, um, you know, and I, I think you're totally right to just remind us all that, like, because this conversation has gotten so much about trans people and specifically around testosterone and the perceived advantages and all that, um, it's important to know, like, that's not necessarily rooted in science, like that, you know, there's not like an abundance of science pointing to, yes, it's all about tea. Um, and to think about, 
you know, more holistically, what are advantages and disadvantages and, and what are the advantages that we're okay with? Like, you're totally right. We're okay with like a basketball player. That's like ridiculously tall, you know, and we're not like up in arms being like, there needs to be a height limit on NBA players. Cause it's just not fair if someone's, you know, Yao Ming size, you know, everyone needs to be looking like Steve Nash, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing that more holistic perspective. I think that often happens with fear mongering, right? They'll like zoom in on one little specific thing, get everyone all upset. In reality, if you kind of zoom out a little bit, you see a little bit better picture and, you know, reminding us that athletes are human beings and we should be treating them with, you know, human dignity. So um, I invite everybody to continue to advocate for that work. Um, just to close us out, I was curious, you know, can you remind us of, you know, how we can connect with Athlete Ally? If you guys have any resources, websites, social media that folks can engage with, um, how can they connect with you in particular um, if they're interested in moving this work forward in the various communities they're part of? So please follow us on all the social media channels at Athlete Ally. Um, I am somebody who is a community organizer at heart. I believe that each and every single one of us really has the ability to make a difference. So even if it's just resharing something or sharing something on social media, reaching out to folks that you know in your network who might live in one of these states where there are these horrific bans on trans kids existing, basically, you know, you have the ability to start shifting the conversation. So follow us on social media, check out the AEI. Again, it's aei.athleteally.org. And I just want to thank you so much for having me. I love the work that that you do. And um, even though I like to fight people, I'm a little risk adverse <laughs> and I've always wanted to try skateboarding. So maybe sometime you can teach me. <laughs> yeah, I've done boxing, so but I'd love to learn Muay Thai. So next time, next time we yeah. hang out, we'll we'll trade these. Sounds awesome. Yeah, I'd love um, that. I'd love yeah. that. Well, thank you again, Anne, for sharing about you know your athletic journey and you know your journey through Athlete Ally. I think what you do is amazing. And yeah, I'm excited for the future. So thanks again for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by Skate Like a Girl and the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. It was produced by McKenna Duda, Kim Woozy, and Kristen Ebeling. The music is by Marby Miller. A big thank you to Dr. Matthew Atencio and Dr. Missy Wright for their support.